0: Hello out there. Welcome to Radical Musings. Good to have you here. Uh, Today, I want to connect with Dr. Astrid Hagar. She's a professor of clinical pediatrics at the USC Keck School of Medicine and the founder and executive director of the Violence Intervention Program at Los Angeles County USC Medical Center in East Los Angeles. Her work is so, so vital and important to so many people whose lives she's changed for the better While the subjects of violence and injustice are really heavy, there's a comfort in knowing that there's something we can all do about it. And this is my Radical Musings with Dr. Astrid Hagar. How we met, you know, uh, was years and years of of me going to these events for Heart, which is uh, the organization that helps your work at the violence intervention program. You're a child abuse doctor. Uh, you've done uh, so much work, uh, basically helping. Uh, went from child abuse to the elderly to all all, all people who are in marginalized communities who who mm-hmm. need your need help, especially uh, survivors of sexual assault. Right. Um, and so. For years, about 15 years, I, I would go every year as much as I could to this big event that would raise money for the work that you do. And one year, about five years ago, uh, Alexis had passed away and, and I, it was about a couple months l- later and you were up there talking about forming and putting together a clinic for the LGBTQ community. And I was like, oh, my God, I, I want to be involved with this. I want to be involved with this because I had started a foundation for the Alexis Arquette Family Foundation, which we just disintegrated. And I'm um, helping your work now, uh, which is why it even came about anyway. Um, uh, and and I asked if we could come see you and David Arquette and I, my brother came down there and offered some money to maybe make within your new clinic that you were starting a a a, a, a art studio, like some kind of art thing where people could create art. And I thought, because Alexis is an artist and creativity can help trauma. And so I thought that would be a great way anyway. And you said, I have a better idea. Let's do this together and we'll call it the Alexis project. And so Let's talk about the Alexis Project and how it came about before this meeting, how you got to that meeting.
1: Well, I mean, I think you and I got together because I needed help in getting it off the ground. Um, And we can talk a little bit more about that. But uh, prior to that, uh, part of, of what this program does is we are kind of the gatekeeper for all children going into foster care. And uh, we see an awful lot of kids who fail foster care who come back again and again and again. Uh, we are open 24 hours a day, so these kids can come in in the middle of the night. And um, and we also, you know, I'm also running a big sexual assault center and child sex abuse center and a teen center and a, all of this stuff. So we had a teen clinic going, and I'm sitting there a couple of nights. I'm down there late, and one night I watched these kids coming in that were failing placement. And I didn't.
0: What does that mean?
1: Failing placement. Well, they had been retained. Yeah, they've been detained from their family uh, because the family either didn't want them. I mean, it is so sad to see um, parents who actually bring the kids in, drop them off, and say we don't want them. Um, But then we have a lot of kids that are floating in the system, the foster care system, and they fail uh, foster placement, and they are loose. They're on the street, and they get picked up and. They can be, you know, young kids or they can be teenagers. So I was sitting there, you know, talking to my staff one night. And I watched these kids coming in, most of them teenagers at this point, like 13 to 19. And they were bringing all their possessions in in brown paper bags. And a lot of them were barefoot and it was cold. And I was looking at this going, well, maybe I just get flip-flops and duffel bags. And how do I help them? And then I began listening a little bit more. And I realized... That my staff saying, "Hey, Astrid, they've been here uh, six times. They've been here ten times. They don't. They can't stick anywhere because nobody wants them." And I thought, "Oh, wow, that's really that's frightening." Um, and
0: why? Why didn't they want them? Why? Is well, it because, because yeah. You know,
1: well, there were two things that would basically push everybody away. Number one, if they were queer, and um they the foster parents didn't, were uncomfortable with that, especially if they were transgender, um, which certainly made me think of Alexis. Mm-hmm. Um, but they would they would kick them out, or they would put such serious restrictions on them that the kids would leave. So I was sitting there watching this happen in the dead of winter and and uh, thinking to myself, well, how do we change that? Uh, and thinking, well, you know, we need to have a clinic for these kids. And you you go and mention to people uh, over the years, we need specialized clinics for special populations, and they wouldn't listen to you. Just happened to be that the head of health services in L.A. County at that moment, at that moment, this was six years ago, at that moment was uh, gay. So I went and talked to him, and I said, we have uh, a need, and I need your help. And he basically said, Astrid, I don't care how much it costs as long as the kids are safe. Mm. So we had basically a supporter that was going to hear what we had to, what we had to say about it. Um, this, this idea of a special clinic was then solidified because we had a, we had a temporary shelter for teens on site because they were on the street and I couldn't stand it. I couldn't stand it. I literally couldn't stand it. A lot of them were sleeping on the floors of social work offices or cops in police stations. And so I was trying to give them a shower and food and bed and all that. So I'm sitting outside the door, the front door to the clinic, which is at LAC USC med center. Uh, We had renovated uh, the parking lot into a park. There were trees or benches and I'm sitting out on one of the benches looking at these kids and it started getting dark. And, um, I was watching the kids come out of the shadows coming towards me because if they come and sit in my lobby or in my, in my waiting room, we can, we'll feed them. Even if it's a peanut butter sandwich, they have something to eat and it's warm and we actually have a shower and we have clothes. So there was, you know, although we're a clinic, we had the uh, aura uh, being a shelter. A so yeah, it was a safety place. I'm sitting out there on this bench, you know, looking at these kids coming back. And actually, I'm thinking to myself, God, the head of social services should be here with me. I, actually, you know, actually, Roseanne, I thought about calling him and telling him to come on over and sit with me. And this, this woman, young woman, came and sat next to me on the bench. You know, a little close, you know, but still sitting there. And um, I looked at her and kind of did a double take. And I recognized her from being coming in the clinic. And she was transgender, and I, so I said, um, "Wow, here we are together on this bench, and you know, I mean, make sure we get get you something to eat, and where are you sleeping tonight?" And, and then finally, I said, my classic question is, "What could I do for you? Mm-hmm. How could I be helpful? What what would make a difference in your life?" And she said, uh, "Give me hope." Oh. And uh, I thought, "Well, I need." I need more than just putting a Band-Aid on this. I need something where it's not just seeing them. It's healing. Right. It's like how do you deliver to them a sense that they have a future? So thus I had Mitch Katz downtown who was head of DHS, and I said, I'm going to do this. Identified a doctor. He gave me uh, money to hire a doctor to come in and run it. And then we started this clinic and then it, you know, was taking off and getting bigger. And what are we going to, how do we, how do we grow it? How do we meet the needs? We had patients coming in that, you know, needed endocrinologists. We had other patients coming in that wanted surgery. We had um, kids that needed a place to live, uh, needed new clothes, uh, shoes, needed binders, um, any number of things that they needed. And um, that's why that day, uh, in Brentwood with you sitting on the next to the back row on the right side with a hat on, um, absolutely typical Rosanna. And um, I made an appeal. I said, wow, i am got this clinic going and I need help. And would you please get a hold of me if you think you could help me with it? And then um, almost immediately – had a call from, from you down here and said, can we come talk to you? And I'm sitting at the table where you and David were sitting when you came in, and a um, fascinating moment because it was like, well, oh, we want to invest in your new Hope Center, which was amazing, uh, awesome offer. And I had been struggling with how to put this LGBTQ clinic on the map so that it would be something that everyone would aspire to have, so that it would normalize healthcare, that it would create an environment for these kids that was safe, uh, that there wasn't, you know, a rainbow unicorn over the door. They didn't have to declare who they were. They could come and get the help they wanted. So here I am trying to figure it out, and I needed a name. I wanted a name. What's going to be a name? And I was asking for names. And you walked in, and you said, "We let me tell you about our sister. And that's when I looked at you and said, "Forget investing in this. Give me her name."
0: Wow, well, it was. Yeah,
1: you, and both you and David cried. Yeah, we did. We started. I cry now just thinking about that moment because
0: it's yeah. uh, it's exactly uh, what Alexis had wanted to do in her life. Any like mm-hmm. wanted a center. We talked about it. Yeah, that's when I, the money for the the art center, but a creative space. Which would be also for healing and acceptance and and that was the dream that Alexis always would talk to me about, so here it was that you were actually doing this in really and mm-hmm. and 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 actually helping kids being able to transition to to therapy, just all the the medical care they need um and and helping so many kids thrive
1: uh and it's still not enough, isn't it yeah. is it you know, it's not, it's like, um, you know, it's very validating that we begin to see places, you know, like Portland, like you and I talked on Friday, yes. springing up and going forward and wanting to do the same and wanting to know how to network with us so they can do exactly the same thing that, uh, that we did here. That's exciting. Yes. Um, the fact that with, you know, once we started, we put the name on the door, uh, we made it very visible that we have uh, the head of Department of Children and Family Services in Los Angeles saying, Astrid, uh, can you see all the kids in the county that are in foster care who want to be in that special clinic? They want that kind of support. It's not just that they want a doctor that tells them they don't have diabetes or they don't have epilepsy or something. They want somebody who says, that validates who they are, that creates a normal environment for them, that has mental health, how can we help you that's linking up mentors, uh, tutors so they can study remotely. And wow, it was like, uh, I mean, one day we had 15 transgenders uh, call and ask for appointments. Uh, So it's not just transgenders, but it's certainly that that scares people. Transgenders scare people. Really. um, As do a lot of gays. I mean, you know, foundations that are conservative, right-wing dominated boards are not thrilled about giving us money for, uh, the Alexis project.
0: So how are you, how, how are you continuing to get the funds that you need for the Alexis project and what can people do to help you achieve?
1: Well, I mean, I think that, uh, once we started down the path of, uh, of having a doctor as a medical director, Um, And we already had this very successful child abuse program and sexual assault center and DV center and elder abuse program, everything, you know, what you ask me to do something, I usually say yes. So, you know, we already had that. We had a network that we could trans, you know, we could put patients, uh, support people in that clinic. So in writing um, and then we've got some, we have private and we have foundation money that came in to help the extras. You know what I call the essential non-essentials. It's like we can just see patients, but the idea that we can call them and ask them if they're okay and did they get food during the during this pandemic? Are they eating? Uh, where are they sleeping? And yeah, are they yeah. in shelters or whatever? So we've been uh, fortunate. There, there's um and of course I'm not always truthful. So I've been known to tell untruths. Uh, so in writing to a very conservative foundation. I'll talk to their program person on board, and they'll say, yeah, I don't know if they'll fund an LGBTQ clinic, but they'll fund a teen clinic. So I write a grant that's aimed at the teen clinic that actually, because so many of the teenagers we see are, in fact, gay, that we we can translate it into the whole clinic. And that has been, uh, I mean, it's sad. You know, when people say we've come such a long way about dealing with this population, no. I, I kind of sneer a little bit. Um, we've come a ways, yeah. But, but we no, haven't, we, you haven't. Yeah, we haven't
0: come far enough. And especially with what we just saw with the last administration, and we're seeing so many oh. uh, murders of of transgender people. You know, well, suicide
1: too. That what? The suicide rate, yes, yes, yes. I mean, it's kind of like, well, if they aren't going to kill me, maybe I'll just kill myself. It's uh, you know, it, it does require us to uh, to care about every single person that walks in the door. You know, it's it's that's the difference is that we can't just treat them like a 15 minute appointment, that's just not going to happen within the community.
0: Are, and I know you're starting, so, like, there's, there's so much work that you're seeing just this has led you to just really focusing on the, on the black community in a mm-hmm. way that, that yeah. you, you've always done. But in a, in a really serious way, because of the Black Lives Matter movement and everything that's happened, we're seeing the, the rise of racism, fascism so much. You are seeing horrendous trauma and, and abuse in a way maybe that you hadn't seen before. Is even worse? Well,
1: yeah, I think what we talked about, you know, and I think one of the things we tried to put forward and could get no traction, no traction, um, was the idea that, you know, when you go and talk about um, providing care to an African-American population, the answer that bounces back at me from health departments is they have access to care. And I would say they have access to the worst care. I would say it's like, it's like saying, feeling self-satisfied because you have gone into a village in Africa and dug a well where the women used to have to walk 10 miles and bring water back or something. Oh, I gave them a well. They have access to it, but you can't drink the water because it's toxic. That's what, we, that's what we were providing essentially into a, a minority black population was the least Least of uh, of the of the doctors it was the worst we could send them, and they weren't ethnically appropriate. They didn't couldn't walk in their patient's shoes. They couldn't understand the anxiety and the fear of driving while black in a white neighborhood. Or, or you know, it's just unbelievable the, the the tension that was there. And I raised the issue of why do black women die and their babies die around childbirth? And um, Why don't we build the very best clinic in the world, all staffed with African-American doctors and nurses and therapists, and show the world that it doesn't have to be like this? So based on that suggestion that I made to public health here in L.A., I was looking, I asked, I got very, very interested in why the preponderance of black kids... Uh, We're going into foster care. So, I mean, the startling facts are, Rosanna, that if you are an African-American child in this county and if you get a call into social services that says, I think there's something wrong at this household, that you are six times more likely to end up in foster care if you're black than if you're white you are tw- you are 16 times more likely to end up incarcerated in a and if you are a black teenager and you're arrested you will end up 16 times more than a white person you'll end up in jail and that's so, in t- LA county we're talking about LA county and, it's, and the statistics are almost basically the same for the United States the only reason that those statistics are diluted by national by national uh, numbers is because you have parts of the U.S. where there are uh, a diminished number of African-American families. But if you look at concentrated areas like Chicago and New York and, and St. Louis and, and New Orleans and the big cities where there is a big you know, a, a, a concentration, the statistics are the same. And if you look at the the, the rates for uh, the population uh, in general in the United States versus the population that's in prison as adults, it's frightening. I mean, it goes from 14% of the population is African-American to greater than 50%, 60% are the in, are incarcerated felons are black. So I mean, if you look at just the sheer risk factors for being black, I mean, I would be scared to death. Well, did you see? I mean, of course
0: you did. But uh, the Los Angeles Police Department for Valentine's Day, the 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 Valentine's Day picture card that was going amongst around the the police department was a picture of George Floyd and saying, uh, "Take you take my breath away." Oh God! This help is this us this this was this was the the. The Los Angeles Police Department, somebody exposed it. It went all around the, the, the police department as a joke. In our county, I'm so horrified. I, I, I'm so. We need to weed the white supremacists out of the police department. Out of, uh, it's so horrendous to me. So the fact that you're telling me that that's, you know, they arrest these 16 year old boy for something Mm -hmm. that he, you know, had a a joint or or something, and they'll put a a a huge charge
1: on them and put them in prison. We have racist police officers. Well, the race that's true. And they and so many of the systems are actually racist, Rosanna. It's mm-hmm. like me sitting here as a child abuse doctor. If I get a call from a, a affluent white community hospital, ER, mm-hmm. hey Doctor Hager, can I run a case past you? If it's a if it's an African American family that starts the conversation, there's this big black guy here with this kid and this kid's got a broken arm. All right. Uh, I'm going to call DCFS and I'm going to detain. And well, what is your suspicion? Well, there's a big black guy here with a kid with a broken arm and I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to call social services. Now you fast forward it a week or two weeks. They call me and they say, well, let me run this case fast past you. Astrid, I have this uh nice white couple here from Van Nuys and they have a kid with a broken arm and i just want to make sure that i don't need to report this because I, my feeling is that there's there's no abuse here mm-hmm. the difference is that you're setting that black family up all right the other thing that we do is that we go into homes where they don't we have not given them any resources so we've complicated their lives by making them extremely poor single parenting no access to services they're hungry they're they're stressed out, and uh, and we go in. Well, there's no food in their refrigerator. Okay, or okay. I'll give you another example. It's like the simple answer is let's find out what they need and give them food to put in their refrigerator rather than taking those kids away. Yeah, they don't want to lose their mom. For no.
0: And then be so, put into foster yeah. care where they could actually be sexually assaulted. Like there's, I know you're good at finding the right foster care, but there
1: are foster care that, that don't do the right thing once they have those kids. They can be abused within the foster yeah. care. Well, let me give you an example. Something absolutely blew me away when I um, started this sort of uh, where these kids could stay for 24 hours and get fed and get a bath and all of that. And, and the, the state swooped in and closed us after three years basically because the kids were staying there too long. Well, of course they were. I didn't want them on the streets. I didn't care how long they stayed there. But but that aside, one of the things I learned was that because I was paranoid about losing the site, which of course I did, uh, was the fact that I would sit there and say, get this kid into placement. Make sure there's a foster family for this kid. And so I listened to them and they would call a foster parent and they'd say, I have a twelve-year-old African American kid here who needs to be placed as soon as possible, and on the other end of the line, the foster family would say, "How black is he, and what's his hair like?" Oof. So, so you're looking at, would you want to send a kid there? I don't want to send no. an American no. kid there. I don't care how black he is or what his hair like. He needs a home. Yes. So, you know, the idea that we were dealing with rampant racism. Mm -hmm. Uh, not just in the police department, but also in social services, right? And and the foster care system um, was absolutely frightening to me. Uh, And so then I'm looking at, you know, we started this big program for uh, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, which is a disorder associated with mothers drinking while they're pregnant. And it's dominated by African-American kids. Well, let's look at what are the well, That causes kids. autism, too, right? The, well, it looks like autism, people, and, yeah. you know, they gets confused oftentimes. But these kids have one thing in common, is that they can be very... They can grow into... Uh, they're smart, but they can also grow into being very violent and, uh, and sexually uh, aggressive. And um, it has to do with the fact that they have brain damage from the alcohol. So we started looking at this, and why is it we have so much of this? And, and why are we not diagnosing it? And then I read um, uh, this book by this African-American psychiatrist that died recently, but he was practicing in Chicago, and he said, I owe my patients an apology because over the years I diagnosed them as having all these other disorders, from autism to oppositional behavior disorder, or what happens in a lot of times in schools, just a bad black kid you know, they all have problems. So it was just a racist diagnosis. And he says, I realize now that they had fetal alcohol syndrome. I mean, let come on, give us a chance to get to that kid and let's get a chance to get to the community and say, if you're activists for changing society, let's stop drinking and then you look at where they shop. And the then the dominant the, the dominant factor in the inner city is liquor stores on every corner and no stores that are selling healthy foods.
0: Yeah.
1: So so of course, and then you 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 just throw them into poverty. You don't give them respite care. They don't have they don't have any any kind of support, and then you're asking them to be perfect parents. Come on. Yeah. Why don't we? So what we're recommending in the county right now, and I'm working with DCFS on it. Um, is to create a clinic, an equity clinic for families that are at risk for losing their kids that are African-American. And it'll be all black staff and all, what do you need? So we'll look at partners to underwrite food, housing, education. Let's get that mom her GED.
0: Yeah. How can, so how can we collectively help you achieve that?
1: Well, there's several things I think we need to do as a society. Number one, we need to learn to deal with our inner racism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we need to learn how we are subtle racists. We are. We, we are. we can't walk in a black man's shoes. We've not done that. We don't understand the fear, the tension, the anxiety that goes there. Um, I, and I think words are easily spoken. You know, black lives matter to me. Black children's lives matter more, uh, to be honest with you. Um, But what I do. So that's what came back to me, is I'm sitting here arguing one family at a time. What if I built a clinic that is for all families? And then what if I hold my friends accountable to support those? the idea of how can I help that family through a year? How about if I make sure that maybe they're in a in a studio apartment with three kids? Maybe if I help pay five hundred a month, they could upgrade to a one bedroom. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How about what are we doing? You know, we're feeding like three hundred people a week here out of the generosity of the people that support us. Um, most wealthy people in this country made so much money last year. Yeah, made so much money. How about if we just have a guilt fund I
0: know.
1: that we say, I, I need to give. Amazon, <laughs> come on, let's that's, that's feed these people <laughs> with just I mean, your I profits. Think, yeah. <laughs> I think that we would, but see this clinic, my idea, Rosanna, is this clinic looks at every family and looks at that mother and says, did you finish high school? What is your skill set? How can I help you? Maybe I could give you respite care on Saturdays so you can actually get your nails done or your hair done. Maybe how about we make sure you have enough food in the refrigerator? How about, you know, that we have the ability to resource that mom in order for her to be successful for the first time in her life. And and you know what? We have to take responsibility for those people around us. We have to. I agree. So it is is not just L.A. I mean, I'm here in L.A. We are going to start this equity clinic just like I started our child abuse clinic, which we can talk about. It has been phenomenally successful at saving kids' lives and phenomenally successful in getting them well and getting them healed and on. We need to do the same for a population that we are giving lip service to right now. We are basically saying black lives matter. Well, then if they matter, let's make it matter. (laughs) Yes. make Yeah. It's what we do. Yes. I mean, I, it's easy to say that I'm, uh, I am, uh, for, uh, the idea that we support African-American rights and that they get to vote and they get, you know, all of this stuff, but it's what we actually do. Not what we say.
0: Can you talk about the importance of healing, the power of healing? Are you seeing, do you see that in Mm -hmm. your clinic? Like people that are actually come to you in, in, in a way that is
1: almost hopeless.
0: And then you come out the other side and they like, wow, they're, they're healed. They're going to
1: move on. They're going to help others heal. Well, you know, one of the things that we do is we ask families and kids that come in, how can we help you? Like, what do you need in order to get well? And I can best uh, tell you, I can probably best uh, explain this through stories. Um, So years ago, uh, when I started this clinic, I was just this little child abuse doctor here. I thought I'd be spending my time in court talking about child abuse and taking kids away from families. And I really finally understood that I was about healing. That I was, no child abuse, there's no I can't write a prescription to treat child abuse. You know, and that's not what I can do. What I can do is uh, hook them up with what they need in order to get their, their power back. How do I get my power back? How do I get my self-esteem back? Because uh, somebody took it away from me. So years ago when I was, um, I was in a clinic in a building that no longer exists because we tore it down after an earthquake, I was sitting there when LAPD brought in uh, a little girl who had been raped in South central LA and she's a little Hispanic kid. Um, How old was she? She was seven years old. Oh God. And she had been walking home from her grandmother's house where she went after school to her home. Her job was getting her five-year-old brother to school every morning because her parents were usually passed out. And, uh, she was just an amazing little kid. And uh, she was walking home from her grandmother's. And this guy saw her, dragged her uh, behind some pallets by a railroad track and and, uh, and raped her, brutally raped her. And she came into my clinic.
0: Who found her? Like, just, the um, police found she, her?
1: She, her uncle. Oh, God. She wandered, she wandered out from behind this pallets, and he brought her into my clinic. And just so, I mean, I, I she came in in a dress that was, um, you know, five, six sizes too big for her, down to her ankles, gray, dirty dress, bare feet. And the gravel of the next to the railroad tracks ground into every inch of her body. And I'm sitting there. I've just opened my clinic. I have nothing. I have me. And I all I could say was to myself inside, I'd like to take her home and put her in my swimming pool. Yeah. That's how privileged I am. Yeah. So I decided that if I ever have anything, I'll have a shower. I'll have, I had no clothes. I gave money to my secretary. Go find her underwear. Go find her shoes. She didn't own underwear. So we went and bought her a dress at the dollar store and underwear at the dollar store up the street. But I, I ended up taking her home. Via oh, McDonald's because she hadn't eaten, and I vowed I would never, ever be without again. So, you know, I saw her two more times, and I didn't have mental health. I didn't have resources. I didn't have case management. So she was lost to follow-up. So every time I drive South Central, I wonder if that's her sitting by on the curb waiting for a bus, uh, you know, and I, I, I see it as a failure. But I did, I did get her new clothes, and I did get her to court. She never had to testify because she was dressed to the nines, sitting in the courtroom hallway when the, when the perpetrator walked by. Oh, they she found it. He took one look at her, and he pled guilty, and that was that. Because she looked so together. So it's the idea of how do we give them what they need. Did uh, it was, yeah. And I, I learned from that that I had to have a support group. I had, that's where Hart was born. I needed to have underwear. I needed clothes. I needed to have the ability to give people food. Um, I mean, like, how can I help you? What do you need? So it, it was a learning experience for me because I didn't realize that those services were not an automatic part of of this culture. That those who had nothing would have access to somebody caring about what they look like. So and it it was... Another kid that we ended up getting plastic surgery who couldn't leave the home because she'd been so badly abused. She could literally not go to school. So it was finding the money at a heart, absolutely, to get her plastic surgery. I, the plastic surgeon donated his time. The mm-hmm. hospital did not donate their time. So we paid for her anesthesia and her hospital. She had six surgeries before she could actually leave the house. And she went on to be a, a 4.5 GPA student in high school, a full scholarship to college. Uh-huh. Um, and you know, her only complaint to me was um, that I hadn't done such a great job with her plastic surgery because she still had areas of baldness on her head where she'd been beaten. And, uh, and, all, and she was a head cheerleader, and she couldn't uh, put her hair in cornrows. So, I mean, it's, if you learn what you need – and then you learn about healing and healing is about yes mental health it's about giving them uh, success in school it's about giving them that bright red sweater to wear to, to school when school starts in september rather than something dingy and dark and disgusting mm-hmm. it's about shoes on your feet it's about clothes in a duffel bag it's about self esteem mm-hmm. and it gives and the idea that you give them their power back and rosanna you know that it's like when you deal with women who've been beaten or raped Mm -hmm. somebody took away their essence of who they are they they lost their power and you 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 can't talk about healing until they begin to get their power back and how and and
0: that's just giving them the basics essentials in life and their dignity back and and that where and, they feel that right. they they are empowered, and that's what you do. You you empower them
1: to heal, well, you know, right? And and you know it's 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 giving them a sense that they are important, that their lives are important because somebody took that away from them. And and um, you know you, I don't care how little the child is, or how old the child is, or the woman, it's. You know, you lose your power, and how do you get your power back? Um, It's through having a support system like here. We're very interested in healing. I didn't think that I was about healing. I thought I was about diagnosing until I saw that little girl that came in. I thought, wow, how do I do healing? Um, And I learned,
0: and I went and got mental health.
1: That little girl,
0: and after the court case, did you lose touch with her? Do you know what happened to her now? I have
1: no idea what happened to her. But you fast forward. I'm learning my learning curve. Or that was that the learning. You, that was the learning curve because now you do know. You do now have I the know. follow. You learned I do that. Know.
0: That was okay. You lost. That's because you know, let's know, just pray. No, there's I, there's let's pray no. that she's okay uh, and that you, that 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 you did help her and she did go on to being okay. And that's what I pray for. But. Because of your kindness and what you did, do you think that's possible? I mean, what is the? Is there any positive change that
1: you're seeing right now? What are like? What are you hopeful for? Well, I tell you what. I think positive change is when I started this career, there were no, uh, there were almost no cases of sexual assault or sex abuse prosecuted in this in the United States. That and and we progressed from that into a phase where DAs would say. Uh, if the jury doesn't like the woman or the child, they don't, we're not going to win the case, to a time where we can put cases together and we can win them without even having the victims on the stand, which is very traumatic. So I think we saw that uh, a progression. We also saw, which is always classic in my field, to see women stand up, claim what's happened to them, uh, and, and be advocates in such a way that we no longer have this stigma attached to uh rape victims uh you know that, that that we had when we initially started this, I mean when I started my career, we used to kind of muse about this in at my house because of course, my kids know exactly what I do um and my My husband at the time was a cardiologist, and the people would walk up to him in restaurants in the in our town and say, oh, my God, your dad saved my life, all right? And then we I would laugh, and I'd say, well, you guys will never hear that about me in public because everybody will deny that they know me. And, you know, I can remember going to one of my patients' um, graduation from college and standing there in that tent at USC on, on campus, and she was graduating in communications and her parents were there and a lot of friends, et cetera. And, you know, and I'm reasonably visible, you know, at, at, in, in LA. And, and they said to her, how do you know Astrid Hager? And we both lied. And I think that we've gotten past that. I think we're now at a place where we can say, uh, I'm, I was a patient of Astrid Hager's, mm-hmm. um, and people, it's the not. shame,
0: because there was so much shame around, now right. we're able to come out and say, no, this happened to me and, and Dr. Hagar helped me.
1: Well, I think too, I think, you know, like we're looking at in the fall, on, and I'll, I'll give you more information about this when it solidifies, is we're looking at having national marches in all the cities, big cities, to look at um, survivors uh, of, of abuse and the people that rescued them together to talk about uh, why? What a difference it makes um, to have somebody that believes you and uh, and invests in your future. So, I mean, I have a patient that answers my phones in my clinic at night, who will tell you flat out that if we hadn't rescued her, she'd be dead. Uh, grew up in the projects, and um, it was simple things. It's not a, it's not like you know, not like you're taking them home and 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 there's therapy every day, and you're you know paying for their college or something it boiled down to making sure that we hooked her up with the services and then followed her every day of her life because I was never going to have that experience of losing a child into the the urban uh you know landscape of graffiti and bars on windows and barbed wire and and pit bulls no i i was never going to have that again because i weep when i drive down uh on you know san pedro and i keep going south um i see people sitting with their backs up against the graffiti walls and i wonder if it's maria and that makes me sad yeah
0: i hope it's not maria We know the trauma that that it takes, you know, and we've experienced it. We know many, many people that have been uh, sexually assaulted as children, and it's a huge fire to walk through to get to the other side outside of it and be able to heal and, you know, not succumb to drug addiction and eating disorders and all the things that come along with the trauma of self-punishment
1: that we've all seen. And I think we have to be, as a society, be willing to hear that. You know, without judging or without turning and walking away. I think you and I have talked about this at length, Rosanna. It's the idea of we need to be there, you know, whether they're, you know, whatever their circumstances in life is that we need to be able to uh, acknowledge, support, and ask the absolute quintessential question is how can I help? Yes. I was just...
0: That's the most important question. How can I help? And then being of service to the people that really do need the help. I found in my own life and just people around me, friends, people have known me for a long time, when I even talk about these things, and I just even had a, you know, someone says to me, you're just always being so negative. Like it's negative to talk about this stuff, but it makes me crazy that they're not seeing how important it is to talk about so that, and help. And they just don't want to hear it because they feel in some way that it's negative negative to talk about or that uh, do you experience that with your own, like people
1: around you? Like I do. And it's horrible. It's so horrible to me. Well, you know, I think maybe we need to We need to talk about that a little bit. I think that um, there is nothing probably more joyful or brings more joy or happiness into life than uh, the idea that you're giving to someone that, is, that needs it or that you make their life better. And that doesn't mean you're writing them a check. It doesn't mean no. that you're giving them cash. It means that you're giving them the opportunity to talk to you, Yes, that you're listening, and that you care about them. And I had somebody tell me recently who is extremely blessed from a financial standpoint who said, the only real joy in my life is what I do for somebody else. I agree. And I think people, you know, forget that. It's like um on my wall, I don't know if it's this one or my other office, my medical office, I have a um I have a plaque given to me by uh, a young woman that uh, was her godmother, and uh she comes from a very, very wealthy Asian family, and it says to the richest woman in the world. And I think that we underestimate the power of doing one thing for one person it doesn't have to be you know you're not you're not building a clinic in in uh rwanda or you know you are actually caring about that one person that you can care about and and it's uh it, it's not hard it's not hard to find someone even if you can just listen to them or how can I help you? It's an amazing, um, you know, it's an amazing experience. Um, I was just talking, you know, to Ruchira Gupta, who you, I I think you, I did I
0: introduce you to Ruchira? I think you've, you've, so she works at the, in the, uh, by getting the girls out of sex trafficking brothels in in, in India and uh, they have these, Healing circles, they call. They sit around and, then, and the, the support groups. And also Tarana Burke does that with her, her work in healing people. Do you? Are you starting to do that within the center? Is there a place other than all the incredible medical stuff and following up in their lives and making sure there's education and food and clothing, food in the refrigerator? Is there... Now it seems like we have to find that, that place of healing the trauma Is there, is there room for that in the clinic or do you go to other places to do that?
1: We have, I have, I think 70 therapists that work for me. Right. So it's all, you know, group therapy, individual therapy, we're, we're looking at, you know, new kinds of techniques, et cetera, that we can do. And it, and it goes just in not, not just talking therapy, it goes beyond that. It goes into how do we help them? deal with day-to-day living, because the one thing that that perpetuates um, abuse and violence in families is isolation. Yeah. So the idea that you reach in, and you do have groups, and you do bring people into groups, and we have uh, parenting par- parents that come in, in groups. We have kids that come in groups. So you're absolutely right. It's, it is not being isolated, whether so, it's one-on-one or one-on-fifteen. And then we've had COVID, where we've been forced into isolation, and, mm-hmm. these, and these
0: communities have been forced into not being able to even go mm-hmm. get the needs, anything, and
1: with their abusers. It's, have you seen the rise? It's been insane, yeah, right? No, I'm telling you, when they, when they, I noticed in the LA Times this morning, yeah. they're talking about opening schools. Oh, goodness. so I'm just basically saying to my staff. I had a meeting this morning saying you better gird your loins because uh, we're going to have kids are going back to school. They're going to have somebody safe to tell, and we're going to be seeing it uh, in droves. Obviously, there's an uptick in domestic violence, but you can't get women out of those homes. There's, there's no place to go. The shelters are full. Uh, temporary shelters are full. Or they're closed
0: because they don't want people because they
1: have COVID or they're afraid yeah, that well, they'll get you. Okay, yeah. We can talk about the, the idea of, the, of uh, kids and, and women and families living with three or four families in one uh, three-bedroom apartment. And, it, and COVID goes through that like in a hot knife through butter. And, and uh, what do you do? I mean, how do you keep them safe? I think that's uh, a challenge. One of the challenges with domestic violence that I learned a long time ago was give a real answer. Don't just say to somebody in the emergency room, oh, uh, don't go home. You know, they don't have the wherewithal to go someplace. It's like, where can I send you that you'll be safe? Um, I'm famous for buying, uh, not, not in the coronavirus time, but before that, I'm famous for buying airline tickets to remote parts of the U.S. so that women can return home or go find their sister or go to an uncle or grandparent and, uh, um, get away from their abuser. Yes, right. Cause that's the real answer. Uh, the, 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 the stupid answer is, Oh, well, listen, you don't have to go home again. Wait a second. Uh, these are individuals who have no choice but to go home again. I don't care whether they're rich or poor. Uh, the choices are, uh, extremely limited. And usually it involves hyper control. So they do not have access to funds, et cetera. So it's up to us. Yeah. So what do we
0: do? as a society, to take responsib- the responsibility for equality and justice? What can we individually do?
1: Well, I'll tell you what I would say to everybody in, in the U.S. and uh, elsewhere, is I would say find do, do find an agency in your community that has taken on doing this, not talking about it, but doing it, and and support that agency one person at a time, not asking... Like, you know, just say, what does one child need in your agency or one woman need in your agency and figure it out? You know, my very first time I ever asked anybody for anything, I asked a women's church group to get the clothes and the stuff together to send that little girl to court that I talked about to begin with. They had, because they had said, let us know what we can do. And I said, I need clothes for her so she can go to court because she has nothing. It's, it is not a big deal. Mm-hmm. You can do one agency at a time, and I think the other thing is that we need to support uh, the basically poverty-driven families in our community, but certainly the African American kids and their and their single moms, which dom- dominate that uh, that culture. Uh, in terms of how can I help them? What do they need? Maybe they need money for school. Maybe 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 that that uh, they maybe they would actually. Uh, be aggressive and run for office, and be something in their city, or be something on their school board, or demand the best if they had the support they needed. So I think asking those questions, and if you belong to a group, find out uh, how do you adopt a family out of this group? How do you end up helping a family? Not I don't I don't advocate that we take these that you end up with the families living in your house. That's not what I'm advocating. I'm advocating that you go to. Uh, an agency or a church or somebody else that's delivering that kind of service in your community, and ask them the classic questions: What can we do to be helpful?
0: Can we? do people donate to your, which is the Violence Intervention Program, and 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 donate directly to you?
1: Yeah, it, it's it's very easy. We if you just go online, you can read all about us. It's one big long word: Violence Intervention Program dot org, and. Um, Yes, we obviously that's not why I'm on this podcast with you but I but I do think that um, we have done an, an excellent job during the coronavirus of keeping people safe. Well and the um, money really
0: does go there. It's like there's that's not going in your pocket. I know that, that it's no, no, it's, no. it's going I in have, helping I have, families. Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. I'm actually I actually uh, hate Raising money, so I know you're I, not good at it. That's why I asked. Like I, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm telling everybody to do it. So you, I know. I you, mean, you, my, you, my don't, you don't, ask is that. I feel like it needs that. What we do is an entitlement. So everything here has been based on a business model, which is unique to a nonprofit. Is that we build programs and we sell them back to the county, so that no matter what, they don't go away. In other words, we think what we do is so important that it it can't. Just go away because I didn't raise enough money that year, so the services are all based in uh, contracts with the county of los angeles or or the state or the feds, so that services don't go away. What we use money for here is for food right now for housing um, and uh, and education and those those basic services is what we use the money for interesting, fascinating I had. My volunteer coordinator come to me and say, "Can you explain to me, Astrid, why people are coming in and asking for cleaning, you know, supplies like you know, like soap and detergent and mops and all of that other stuff?" And I thought about it and I said, "Well, because every penny they have is going for food. So if they want to wash their clothes, they are asking for us to figure that out." Uh, Interesting, fascinating kind of of. of uh, a window into the lives of uh, the patients that we are seeing. Um, Well, I think you're, um, I wish there was, there's nobody
0: like you and I'd love you and thank you so much for everything that you do for, for humanity. But Astrid, is there anything else you want to talk about that you feel like that we haven't talked about or covered that you'd like to?
1: Well, I'd like to talk about Courage. I think that you have a, a great dollop of courage, Rosanna, in standing up for the things that you believe in. And and I think that people will follow you almost anywhere because you're passionate about what you believe in and you have the courage to speak the truth. And I think that right now, to anybody who's watching this podcast, I challenge them to dig deep and have the courage to say the things that no one else will say that it's not okay for kids to be kept at the border away from their parents. And it's not okay for the kids on the border to be sexually assaulted by those who are are there to protect them. It's not okay for foster kids to be recruited out of foster homes to go live on the street and be sold as as sexual objects. It's not okay for African-American kids to go into foster care six times the rate of white kids. It's not okay for black uh, adults to dominate the incarcerated uh, felons in the adult prisons in this country. I think it's time for us to have the courage to say those things. And when somebody tells me, Astrid, I'm, it's about money. You need to make money at what you do. Um, I will tell you that it's that it cannot be about the money we spend because we spend so much money on, on trying to fix things after they've gone wrong. It's time to say up front, you know, that's just not okay. It's not okay for us to, uh, to uh, look away when somebody needs something. It's uh, we just need to take it head on. Um, The highlight of my, one of the highlights of my life as a mother of three kids was driving my youngest son through uh, the area he was living over towards Los Feliz, over in that direction, and I can remember I'd gone to pick him up. We were going to go out to lunch or something like that, um, and uh, we were driving down a street, and he he looked over. He says, "Mom, stop!" And I said, "What? What? 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 You want me to stop? Why am I stopping?" He said, "Look over there," and he gets out of the car and runs over because a little old lady had. Crashed on essentially on the sidewalk, her her ro- rolling cart from the grocery store, and hit a, a a tree root. You know how the sidewalks in L.A. can be like, you know, like a roller coaster. And he went over while I waited and helped her put her groceries back in her cart and oh. get it up the driveway to her front door. It's it's that's what I'm talking about. And that was like that. That's good,
0: mama. Good mothering. Where she? He learned from you that it was how important it is to help others.
1: And, um, was that Eric? No, I was actually Christian. <laughs> it
0: was? Um, okay. Yeah, it <laughs>
1: um, Yeah, no, in, and, and, uh, I was just, it's, it's like, well, you know, I hear stories about Eric because he went to college in Colorado from his friends saying that he would always take the homeless into the nearest restaurant and buy them something to eat. Um, and they were always just blown away by why did he do that? Uh, you know, I am the richest woman in the world and, uh, it is having to do with a joy and and often not a very popular voice to be heard. But I think that I have always been willing to say the things that others would not say. And I will tell you right now, it's not okay for minority kids to die at the hands of caretakers, to be lost in the foster care system, to be enslaved in the foster care system, oftentimes and to see themselves as having no hope and no future. And that goes doubly, doubly for the kids that we're trying to take care of in the Alexis Project. Thank you for that.
0: Thank you. Thank you for your courage and for your heart and for your humanity. And uh, I'm, I'm
1: honored to know you, Astrid. Well, likewise, I will tell you, I don't know too many people who have as much Passion for what they believe in, and rosanna don't ever lose that. Some people have a very hard time hearing that, but um, you can't you can't you can't cater to the people who are uncomfortable with the positions that you take. You need to be exactly who you are. I have rarely met anyone like you, and I as you know, adore you and would do anything for you and i'm honored. They have Alexis's name on this project. It makes me feel good every time I walk past that orange sign on the wall.
0: Uh, we're honored, too. That, and, and I know Alexis is honored. And I hope that we're able to help you expand this in any way we can be helpful as a family. And thank you so much.
1: Give my love to everyone. I will. Okay. Take care. All right. You, Bye. Bye. Bye.
0: Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate and review Radical Musings to help other listeners find the show. And subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. To be alerted every time we post a new episode. Radical Musings is brought to you by Audio Up. Produced by Krista Liney and Carla Braun. Edited by Jeremiah Zimmerman. Production support provided by Ashley Ardent. Sam Winter, Tyler Dorson, Emma Rappold, and Richard Regal. Thank you all so much. Ooh, la, la. <whistles>